As we begin this Advent season, uh, lighting the candle, and as we heard a few minutes ago, the, the candle reminds us of the hope that we have uh, in God, the hope that he provided uh, for his people, uh, promising a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer, uh, one who would uh, lift us out of the sinfulness of uh, humanity. Uh, and uh, as we think in terms of that promise being fulfilled at Christmas, uh, at least that's the time of year we celebrate uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, the miracle of the incarnation, God in the flesh. Uh, Christmas, in a sense, is hope personified. Uh, think of it, the eternal God, the supreme being of the universe, the creator, sustainer of all that we know, coming into this life, into human life, into human existence, uh, and becoming a man in order to be able to redeem humanity from their sinful behavior and attitudes. And uh, this is why Christianity, more than any other Religion in the world is a faith based on hope. Um, his coming to earth in human form was the fulfillment of all of the promises uh, throughout history that God had made and an opportunity for people to enter into a new relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who respond to God's invitation of salvation find themselves in a very privileged position indeed. And I'm going to read just uh, three verses from 1 John. We've been looking at several passages of Scripture from uh, this uh, particular letter that John wrote to the early believers. And uh, uh, in, in this one, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that they did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. This last verse indicating that those who have this hope in Christ will live a life that is of consequence because they purify themselves even as he is pure. And so he's talking here about our true identity as children of God. Uh, for those who have accepted Jesus Christ, this is what it means. The fact that we are called children of God, and what that will lead to in the future is yet to be experienced. In fact, I find that uh, uh, some people uh, have hobby themes in Scripture, and they focus on, on all of that. Uh, and it's, it's easy to do that because there's so many themes in the Bible. But one of the things that should really uh, excite us and should be the motivating factor in all of our life is the fact that God has a plan for us. God desires for us to have fellowship with him both here on earth 
and it's somewhat limited because we're still struggling with the everyday situations and circumstances of life. And, uh, uh, you know, as Brother Arnold said, uh, his daughter recognized that he was particularly happy today because he was going to lead in singing. And uh, from his perspective, he said, you know, I, uh, I'm always uh, optimistic. I'm always upbeat. And she said, I don't think so. Because, because those who are closest to us experience us in our everyday circumstances. And when there's something on our minds, when there's something on our hearts, when we're struggling with issues, when there is something in the near future that we cannot control or we're not sure how it's going to go, it will affect us negatively. But if we look beyond that, if we know we are in God's care, we are called children of God, uh, and, and that is what we are. He, he emphasizes that. And the fact that in the world we are not as, as uh, noticeable is because the rest of the world is not attuned to who we are in Christ. They don't know God, so they don't know us, and they don't understand. In fact, sometimes, you know, the Apostle Peter says, uh, you should be able to live in such a way that you're able to give a reason for the hope that is in you to anybody who asks the question. And uh, uh, I have had people sometimes saying, well, why are you so different? Neighbors who didn't know that I'm a believer, didn't know I'm a pastor, didn't know what my faith is, uh, and they just simply noticed a difference in, in how I speak, how I act, how I respond. And, and that is what, what should happen to all of us. Because being a believer is counter-cultural. It is totally different from the rest of the world around us. So he says, there's a glorious and wonderful identity, but there's also a glorious future with our Heavenly Father. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Eternal life begins here and now. The moment you receive Jesus into your heart, the moment you invite him into your life, you become a new creature. Old things are gone. Everything has become new. Now, do we sometimes have throwback Thursdays and Fridays and what have you from past experience? Yes. We're still anchored in this, in this life here. But our spirit, our attitude, our longing should be for that which is to come, a glorious future. We're not sure. It hasn't been revealed exactly what we will be, but we know this. When he appears, we shall be like him. That doesn't mean we will look like him, but we will behave like him. We will act like him. We will become internally like him. We will become Christ-like. That is the desire of every believer, to be more Christ-like. And how do I reflect who he is in my life? Because when we see him at his, his appearing, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And he says that is a great incentive for us to want to continue to live a godly life. Uh, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. His standard is what applies, not what we think, not what we invent. Um, one of the problems that has happened in the, the more modern Christian church is that we have changed the rules. We have, you know, things that used to be uh, taboo, things that were con considered to be sin, uh, all of a sudden have become more acceptable because, you know what, everybody's doing it. 
years ago when I was a young pastor, we had a lady in our church who had really messed up in her marital relationship, ended up getting involved in an extramarital affair and so on. And when I challenged her on that as a pastor, because I was concerned about her, she was a professing believer. And somehow this does not fit with that. And when I, when I visited her um, and spoke to her, she says, Pastor, don't be silly. Everybody's doing it. My response was, you know what? First of all, that's not true. Everybody is not doing it. But even if everybody were doing it, according to the word of God, it's still not right. I didn't write this book. God gave us these guidelines to be able to live a life that is appropriate for someone who claims to be a believer in Christ. And so we have a privileged position. According to the Bible, all human beings trace their ancestry back to Adam and Eve, the original family who were created by God under ideal circumstances in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, also known as paradise. And uh, even though they had everything at their disposal and God would walk with them and fellowship with them, that was the ideal place to be. Why would you ever want to leave that place? But they chose to be disobedient. And because of their disobedience, which is really a form of rebellion against God, God had given them clear instructions. This is what is acceptable, this is not. And they chose to do what was not acceptable. We don't have to argue whether it was an apple or some kind of a pomegranate or whatever fruit it was, but they took the fruit that God says, that's the tree from which you shall not eat. Everything else is yours. And isn't that human nature? That everything that is yours is never enough. We always see somebody who has something that is better. Yesterday on the news, they announced these two friends who, who want, uh, I think, uh, almost $20 million between the two of them. And the newscaster says, I'm happy for them, but I'm also jealous, envious. You see, when we hear something like this, well, I wish I would have won that. Yeah, but God didn't int intend you to have that. And you know what chances are? Most people who win things like that don't do so well. Uh, over and over and over, over again, you hear the stories of people who come into a big um, pile of money in a hurry, and they also lose it in a hurry. So the point is here, they were created in the perfect place, but they chose to disobey, and with that, sin entered the human heart and the human race. And since then, every human being born into this world has been infected by the sin disease. Isn't it amazing you don't have to teach little children how to be naughty? They do that quite naturally by themselves. They can be really cute. And sometimes they're really cute and very naughty at the same time. Nobody has to teach them that because it's innate. It's born into them. The sin principle is something we inherited not only from our parents, but from our uh, ancestors before that and before that, tracing it all the way back to Adam and Eve. We are sinners by nature and often sinners by choice. 
But because of Jesus, and that's the good news of the story of Advent and Christmas, because of Jesus, we now have a choice. We can accept God's gracious offer of salvation through faith in Jesus. We can reject what God offers. But if we do that, see, we have a choice. God does not want us to be robots. He did not create us in such a way that we can only worship him and nothing else. He gives us the choice. But our choice also entails the consequences of that choice. If we choose life, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and those who come to the light are saved. If we choose darkness, if we choose to to do the opposite of what God recommends, we will deal with the consequences of our sin and ultimately suffer as a result of that. In fact, if you look at the world at large, we represent many different ethnic backgrounds in our church, uh, but there's really only two families in the world. There's the family of God. Those are the people who have responded to the invitation of salvation, have accepted, have received Jesus Christ into their life, and so they are God's family, God's forever family. But all the others who have rejected, who are ignorant of, who don't want to hear about the gospel, they belong to the world. And the world is domineered, dominated by Satan himself. You either belong to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of Satan. People who belong to the kingdom of God have a glorious hope of heaven. People who belong to the kingdom of the world, who are thinking worldly things, who are acting in worldly ways, who are living an anti-God kind of lifestyle. Go to hell. We don't talk about hell much. Jesus talked a lot about it because he was concerned about people in his day that they should understand there's a difference between godliness and worldliness, between heaven and hell. And, and we're not being friendly to people by not mentioning where they're going to end up. It's like if you know that there's a bridge that is out and you see cars barreling down the highway towards the bridge that has just collapsed, it would be wrong not to be out there saying, hey, 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 don't go, don't go, don't go stop, stop, stop. Maybe even risking your own life by step, stepping out in front of the traffic to bring it to a halt and say, Back there, the bridge is out. Don't go there, you will die. And our responsibility as believers is to, to, to say to our loved ones, to our friends, to our neighbors, to people with whom we come in contact regularly, don't go barreling down this street, the broad and wide and easy road leads to destruction ultimately called hell. I didn't invent the name either, but God talks about it and warns against it. So, 
There are two spiritual families, God's family, Satan's family. And, and the family of God has a promise of eternal life. We need to make sure that we're in the right family. And this is why in, in John chapter 1, this is the Gospel of John, Jesus himself tells us that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that was simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul, writing to the Galatians, reminds them, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The truth is that the process of becoming a child of God is stunningly simple. It isn't a complicated process. It isn't some magical formula. It is simple faith in Jesus Christ. Taking God at his word, believing what he says, and praying to receive what God has provided for us. He took the initiative. He sent his son. And Jesus agreed to enter this world as a little, tiny little baby, vulnerable, um, divested himself of the glory he had with the Father in order to come and make it possible for us to have forgiveness of sin. If you think it, think of it, it's entirely appropriate for Jesus Christ to come into this world uh, as a little baby because in a real sense, babies are hope personified. When you first receive that little child, uh, it is pure potential. Their entire life is ahead of them. There's no record. There's no track record. They haven't yet behaved in any way, unless mothers might disagree with me, because sometimes babies can kick an awful lot while they're still in the womb. Uh, but normally, all their life is ahead of them. And, and I wonder if there's any parent, any mother or father, uh, who has not looked into the face of that tiny little newborn baby and wondered, what will this little child become? What will he or she accomplish? Will they be a doctor saving lives, a lawyer pursuing justice, an engineer manufacturing all kinds of products, an astronaut, talking about space later, later on in the second service, uh, a college professor, an athlete, a research scientist, uh, we had a lady in, in a church that I pastored many, many years ago. I was just a very young pastor. And uh, someone, uh, she had seven children. Her husband died when the little one was, I think, only three weeks old. A massive heart attack. And someone says, you've got such a nice family. And, and they lived on, a, on an acreage on a farm. Uh, you're raising great farmers. And she said, oh, no, I'm raising missionaries. That's where she was at, okay? So every child, every, every parent has a plan for their children. Anything is possible. But for Mary, there, there was an even better reason than the usual parental pride to justify having a great hope for, the, for her son. Because according to the biblical narrative, the biblical historical record, Mary had been visited by a stranger from outer space, 
Archangel Gabriel himself had come and visited her and gave her an amazing promise. And for the rest of our message, I'd like to move over into Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 36, where this, uh, 30, uh, 38, where this is uh, recorded for us, because the, the birth of Jesus foretold here through Gabriel's visit of Mary of Nazareth. Uh, we're, we're told here that in the sixth months of, uh, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Elizabeth was a relative of Mary in, up in years, and she had been considered to be barren. Uh, she was not able to bear children, and in her old age, she conceived a son. And so God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. That is, they were, uh, he, she, uh, Joseph was her fiancé, as we would call it today, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And then we go on to uh, find the strange greeting that Gabriel gave her. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. Actually, the King James Version, I think, says, Hail. Okay, um, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. Here, here was a godly woman engaged to be married, has a stranger coming uh, with this, this uh, strange greeting to her, and then adds a stunning announcement. Gabriel goes on to say, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Wow, she's not even married yet. She has not yet had any kind of sexual relationship. She is a virgin. She is a pure, young, uh, Hebraic woman who loves the Lord and who gets this strange and stunning announcement. And her initial response in verse 34 is, How will this be? Mary asked the angel, Since I'm a virgin, you're telling me I'm going to have a son? What? Can you imagine what was going through her mind at this point? And the angel uh, replies prophetically saying, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, now back to the reference at the beginning of the, uh, the, the story, your relative is going to have a child in her old age and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. Amen. You're wondering, how will this be? Well, there's a miracle happening over there. Your relative is going to have a baby. She's six months pregnant. Nobody ever thought that could happen. But it did, because God so arranged it. And so Mary's response to all of that, because she was a true believer in God,
totally surrender to whatever God would do in her life. This would be upsetting. This would be life-changing. Because when you think in terms of a woman not yet married, anticipating and expecting a baby that her fiancé was not involved in, uh, in the social circumstances of the day, she would be considered to be a fallen woman. Someone who is living her life in dedicated service to God, totally misunderstood by the community. All of that must have gone through her mind, and yet she responds in verse 38, after Gabriel's announcement, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be as you have said. And then the angel left her. Now what, what Gabriel had said does not stand alone. Because even, even in our uh, reading this morning, we had prophetic utterances out of Isaiah. And uh, those prophetic predictions had been on the books. They had been part of the uh, biblical context of the Hebrew nation and their faith in God, in Yahweh, all throughout history. Ever since what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were chased out because they were disobedient and they lost paradise, they lost that idyllic place called the Garden of Eden. Ever since then, um, it was announced back then that God would send a Redeemer, a Messiah, the Anointed One. And so the ancient prophecy of Isaiah here uh, tells us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace, there will be no end. Mary knew all that, and she also knew that it was the zeal of the Lord Almighty that would accomplish this. This is why, with all that background knowledge, hearing the announcement, Mary, you are the chosen one through whom this will happen. And the only thing she can do is say, Lord, I'm your servant. If that's what God desires, I'm prepared to be the instrument, the vehicle through which God will accomplish his purposes. And so, uh, Gabriel's promise to Mary simply echoed the ancient prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. But at the same time, there's yet another person to be considered because she's engaged to be married. How is she going to break the news to Joseph? But God is a step ahead of her because uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, we read that an angelic revelation came to Joseph Mary's fiancé, by night. <clears throat> he, he didn't know about Mary's pregnancy. He hadn't yet heard the story. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Joseph, in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what she is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
That's kind of a summary statement of all the things that the Old Testament prophets had foretold, and now it comes to a head with Mary and Joseph being the surrogate parents of this Messiah, this heaven-born Prince of Peace, this person that is going to be the Savior of the world, and <clears throat> the idea of calling him Jesus uh, actually means God saves. So the question is, so what? If, 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 if that is what it's all about, Je when Jesus was born, God made it very clear that the baby that was to be born was uh, uh, the one that the world had been watching and waiting and hoping for ever since Adam and Eve lost their status in paradise. The question that goes through my mind is, what joy must have filled Mary's and Joseph's hearts as they looked down on their tiny son when he was finally born, wrapped in blankets, lying in a feeding trough, surrounded by sheep and donkeys, and visited by shepherds? What hope must have flooded their hearts uh, knowing that he was the one in whom God's people would find forgiveness of sin and ultimately eternal life, new life, and a right relationship with God. What peace must have come and overwhelmed their hearts as they considered the awesome truth that he was the one in whom many people would find true and lasting peace at last. It's so easy to be consumed with all that is wrong in our society that we sometimes neglect to prepare our hearts for eternity, which will either be spent in heaven with God or forever banished from the presence of God in a place called hell. It's so easy to get caught up in this life. And uh, we often take great pains to prepare for retirement. You know, there's, there's hardly ever a day that you don't get reminders on the news that you need to save about a million dollars to be able to do all the things you want to do when you retire. Well, I never managed to get a million dollars together, and, and you know what, I'm, I'm still enjoying retirement. Um, not only this, uh, the, the idea is that Often you, re, you, you prepare for a retirement that may not last as long as you hoped it would and may be plagued by all kinds of limitations physically and mentally, and you can't actually live out. I, I spoke to a man not so long ago who had amassed a lot of wealth, and when he thought he could finally retire with all this money and he and his wife would travel over the world, and then she became ill. And then she suffered from dementia. And he didn't want to travel by himself, and he was bitter and angry, even though he was a professing Christian. Angry because I've got all this money and I don't know what to do with it now. Well, that's often how life turns out. Because the bigger issue is preparing for eternity to be spent with God. And for that, you don't need a million dollars. For that, you don't need to have a big house. For that, you don't need a yacht and, and all kinds of uh, timeshares and what have you. We need to get back to where we place our focus on what truly is important 
Why not prepare for what comes thereafter and lasts throughout eternity? And how do we do that? We must place our hope in, and trust in Jesus the Savior. We must confess our sin and seek his forgiveness. We must embrace God's plan of salvation. And I use the word must advisedly because the scripture makes it very plain that without doing that, you're hopelessly lost in sin. So where do I place my focus for the future? Where will I spend eternity? By making a decision for Jesus Christ here and now in this life, while we're still in a right mind, can settle our eternal destiny. And uh, salvation, the Bible tells us, is found in no one else. Only in the name of Jesus can we be saved. If you've already made that decision, wonderful. If not, if you happen to be here this morning and you want to know and find out how and what do I have to do to get there, we'd be happy to help you with that. In fact, uh, uh, when we sing our final song, if you want to stay behind at the front, we'll gladly come and pray with you. We have a little booklet uh, comes from the Billy Graham Association, Steps to Peace with God. It's a very simple outline to help you understand how you can have a right relationship with God, which will lead us to the place where we all want to be, called heaven.